And before we begin our study this morning, let's bow our heads together and let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you so very, very much for this holy Sabbath day and this time for us to come together and, and rest from all our labors, rest from the spiritual battle, and sing praises to thy name, and to be together and, and in unity. And uh, Lord, we thank you so much for creating this day to spend with us, and, and we claim the promise that uh, you will uh, especially bless us upon this most holy day, for we need thy blessings. Uh, not because we're worthy in any way, Lord, but because Jesus is. And we claim this promise in his name. Father, we lift up before you those who are uh, ill and sick. We pray that you be very near to them. Be with uh, Susan's cousin, Andre. We pray that you will be with the doctors and nurses. And uh, we thank you for uh, the praise report from um, our sister there in Georgia. And we pray that you continue to bless her as well. And give us uh, that peace in our hearts that we are in tune with thee and in in uh, in your will doing your will in this battle that we have we know time is getting short and jesus is coming soon and we want to be ready for his coming so please forgive us for our sins we claim the blood that he shed there at calvary we pray for the holy spirit to help us in our walk we thank you so much for the angels who look after us and help us in that walk we pray that you will bless them and give me the words to speak this morning, Lord. And may we be armed and ready for battle with uh, uh, the armor that you provide. And that we may be victorious because Jesus was victorious. We pray this in his blessed name. Amen. Well, friends, this is part three uh, in uh, the series, turned into a series, uh, that I entitled Spiritual Possession. Uh, in part one of this series... Uh, we looked at the main powers involved in possession and defined some terms so that we'd be on the same pages as we go along. Many people have different definitions for certain things, so we wanted to, to get that straightened out. Uh, in part one, we learned that there is a distinction between possessed with devils and being sick. Now, with possession, a disease can be manifested as well. And sometimes the devil will even use someone's disease to do some things um, as well. Um, yeah, but uh, uh, they're, they're two separate things, really. Um, you know, in possession, a disease can be manifested as a result of the possession, but not always. Um, not all sickness or disease is due to being demon-possessed, as some ministries are, are preaching and teaching. Uh, the devil can also cause an illness and then supposedly heal the person of that disease. So, see, uh, we need to be very careful you know, there are born-again Christians that have severe health issues, and I would tell you those who are filled with the Holy Spirit, those who are born again, cannot be demon-possessed because they're actually Holy Spirit-possessed. And being possessed by a demon doesn't mean that you no longer have a will or the freedom to choose. It means that your will is taken captive. It's, it's caged and it's beaten down and, and, and thus so weakened that it cannot... Uh, that you cannot but make the wrong choices. Think of it this way. Think of a, a, a prisoner being a prisoner of war or POW, and your captor continually feeds you propaganda and physically harms you in an effort to break your will. That's similar to what the, the demon does in possession. They constantly are at you to degrade your character, your, your physical and mental attributes, and uh, they would kill you if they could, if God allowed it. And so, I want to make that clear because some think that demon-possessed persons can no longer choose right and wrong because that demon actually owns their soul, in essence, and they have become the kind of a, a, the demon's robot due to a removal of the person's will. But that's a lie, as we discovered. It's a, an attempt by Satan to destroy any hope for a person and to convince them that he's more powerful, you see, than Christ and that they can never be saved. But, uh, praise Jesus, it is possible that uh, you can be set free because <laughs> Jesus came to set the captives free. Praise the Lord. Amen. In part two, we learned that we have been given a commission by Christ to preach repentance. We all knew that before. We agreed to it. Uh, to anoint oil those that are sick, we understood that. But also included in that was to cast out demons, and 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 uh, many people miss that. 
Uh, we're told that these are some of the signs that will follow his believers. And I think as we get closer to the Lord's coming, we will see these manifestations more and more and more. And thus, this is why we're studying this topic, so we can have the armor we need when that time arrives. You know, and there were other things that follow, were to follow the believers, like divine protection from poison, from serpents, uh, speaking in tongues, etc. In part two, we primarily looked at the example of demon possession in Mark chapter 1, as well as some other quick references. And so, so far we've learned that demons know exactly who Jesus is and who follows him. Demons are not attracted to Christ, but they will challenge his authority. Demons attend church, friends, and every meeting of the righteous. Uh, demons must obey Christ, and that's because they are defeated foes. Uh, demons will cry out to distract from righteous testimony or, or truth preaching. Demons will scream aloud or cry out like a raven croaks. That's what the word kind of, the Greek word there means. Thayer says it is a cry from the depth of the throat. Demons will hang around tombs and graves. They are really attracted to death, especially the death of humans. Uh, you cannot reason with a demon, and it's dangerous to even try. Uh, demons will captivate your mind by mesmerizing or hypnotizing you. That's one of the biggest reasons why we don't want to speak to a demon other than to rebuke it in the name of Jesus. Demons love war and violence. They'll fight to stay in possession of their captive. These are some of the things that we've learned so far. Uh, demons only know what God allows them to know. This was something that, that uh, was interesting to discover. Uh, yes, we've all read that Satan is a, a diligent Bible student. <coughs> but there are some things that God gives to his people that uh, the demons aren't, they don't know. And, and so uh, one of the examples was uh, these demons in these examples we saw the last time, they thought Jesus had come to destroy them right then. See, they, they knew there was a time coming. They didn't know when. They didn't know. So there are uh, things that the demons don't, they don't know. They, uh, they only know what God allows them to know. Um, demons do know their time is short and that there is a judgment to come. And uh, we also learn that there can be multiple demons in one possessed person. We learn that there are degrees or different fruits of manifestations of demon possession depending upon how much one may be possessed or by how many demons are involved and how those demons respond. The, the fruit manifested can be of a beast, as we're going to see here in a few moments. We look at the demoniacs. Or... The fruit manifested can be that of a minister of light, such as the Sanhedrin, or or even uh, until his betrayal. You know, Judas looked like he was a minister of righteousness, um, and the Bible tells us Satan can come as an angel of light. Right? It just depends upon the agenda of the demon. Um, some who are possessed can still be physically brought to Christ to be delivered. We learn that. Uh, we learn that only Jesus and those acting with his authority can cast out a demon. You cannot of yourself cast out a demon, friends. We also learn that once a demon is cast out, or demons, the person must replace their life with faith and righteousness or the demon can return and bring others with him and you'll be in worse off shape. And we learned that our choices against doing the will of God and, and really, in particular, indifference to God or His righteousness can invite demon possession. And that's, uh, these are some of the things that we've learned. And so knowing these things, let's, let's continue on. Let's look at uh, some more Bible examples of demon possession and see if we can detect these, these things and learn of any other attributes. Because we want to be well-informed one of the things, you know, you study any history and military conquests, you want to know who your enemy is. You don't want to be surprised by anything that the enemy has. In fact, you want to surprise the enemy. So, we want to learn these things. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to look 
at verses 32 to 35. Matthew 9, verses 32 to 35. And I've got a lot to share with you today here, uh, so I'm going to kind of move along as quickly as I can. I don't want to rush, but uh, let's get through this. Verse 32, As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. Jesus here, he just healed two blind men who were leaving the house at the very time this demoniac was brought to him. And I want you to notice again that someone brought this person, physically brought this person, possessed with a devil, to Jesus. Okay? When a person lacks the ability or strength of faith, um, to come to Jesus for the healing of either you know body or soul. It's usually it's both. Jesus would heal your soul first, usually, um, many respects. Uh, they're really fortunate to have someone interested enough in them to bring them to Jesus, don't you think? And I wonder, are we such people interested in the welfare, uh, uh, the welfare of others, to the extent that we'll bring them to Christ for healing? That's what popped into my mind, thinking. It reminds me of the interest of the four men in Mark chapter 2, you remember, who bore the paralytic through the roof so he could get close to Jesus? They understood the urgency, you see, and by exercising their faith, they were able to help this poor man to reach Jesus and be healed. And he was healed spiritually as well as physically. And it makes me wonder if the spiritual strength, as I thought about this, I wondered if the spiritual strength of the four faithful men was more powerful than the demon, and thus they could act in behalf of this man. Because it would appear that way to me. And, and I think this gives us, as I mentioned before, this gives us some insight into inter, intercessory prayer, doesn't it? Just what is it about intercessory prayer that works? Is it not, in part at least, that we are exercising our faith on behalf of another? And because of that faith, righteous angels have permission to work for that soul and fight the demons on their behalf? And so I say, never stop praying, friends. Never stop praying for your family and for your friends, for your children, um, for the church. Now, it said in verse 32 that the man was a dumb man. That's what it said. Well, what does that mean? I mean, was this man normally dumb? As in, he had a health issue or, or he was born with a mental shortage? Or was this all because of the demon? The word translated as dumb in English is the Greek word kophos. And it means blunted, dull, or dumb or deaf, depending on the context. So by our indifference to God and His laws, again, including health laws, we become dumb and deaf to the truth, and that opens us up to be possessed by the devil, maybe like this man was. The great thing is that not only will Jesus cast out demons, but along with it comes the truth to educate our mind and, and loose the lips to share what's been done. And this man's testimony was... It was a powerful testimony. And with that truth comes a change of attitude and a change of habits. And also comes with the hedge of God around you to protect from that demon returning with friends to take possession again. We also learn that uh, demon possession can make one dumb and deaf physically as well as spiritually. Their spiritual life, if they have one, decreases. And we see this. You, as we study these accounts, you see that the person doesn't get better, they get worse, don't they? And we can see, too, that the act of faith of others on a person's behalf can save them from demon possession, or even death, as you can recall from the story of Abraham, remember? The, the uh, destruction of Sodom, where Abraham bargained with God, so to speak, to have Sodom, uh, to save Sodom if there could be any righteous men found. Do you remember that?
Uh, let's let's go to another example. This one is found in Mark chapter fifteen. Now this one is sh- is short in the mention of possession, and so at first glance one wouldn't think there is much to learn from it. Um, but let's look at it anyway here. Matthew uh, fifteen verse twenty two, and behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Literally, badly demonized or severely possessed by a demon. This is what she's saying. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. You remember this story, friends? But he answered and said, It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Now, the context of this story isn't about being vexed by a devil. Okay, We can see that pretty plainly. But it is a part of the story, so we can learn something from it. And as you ponder this, I mean, and as I looked at this, some questions came into my mind, some questions to think about. First of all, who was this woman? Was she a Jew? Was she familiar with God's laws? Well, not really. This woman was from Canaan. Well, what did they do in Canaan? Well, in Canaan they worshipped idols and they worshipped false gods. So what does that teach us, if anything? Well, the idol worship and lifestyle were were such as uh, to break the law of God. This woman, she was a sinner in need of a Savior, wasn't she? Her sins and that culture of Canaan around her had opened up her household to demons and thus her children to be vexed with these devils. And and when I say that culture around her, you know, by beholding we become changed. And so when we live within... Uh, a culture that's continually nothing but sin and evil, it does have an effect on us if we behold it continually. And so this opened her up, see. Um, You see, beloved, indifference, unbelief, sin, it doesn't just affect the individual person. Sin affects everyone. This is something we need to understand. Because some people say, you know, what you do under the roof of your own house, it doesn't have anything to do with me. Oh, that's not what the Bible teaches. Sin affects everyone. Personal sin, open sin, iniquity, the consequences for our sins don't just affect us, but it also has an effect upon society as a whole. Those around us, those of our household, especially our children, And Satan preys upon our children and youth, and he'll use us to get to them. Again, always pray for your children and the young, and humbly ask the Lord to send mighty angels uh, to battle with these demons. Speaking about this woman, uh, notice this. This is from Signs of the Times, September 9, 1897. It says, She had sought help from the heathen gods, but had obtained no relief. And at times she was tempted to think, what can this Jewish teacher do for me? But the word had come. He heals all manner of diseases, whether those who come to him for help are rich or poor, and she determined not to lose her only hope. So she heard about Jesus and came to him, and that that took faith, didn't it, friends? In fact, Jesus actually made it a point to come to her due to her faith, and it was an opportunity for him to teach a different lesson, as, of course, the demon possession wasn't the main context or or lesson here in this account. 
But I want you to notice that her words and attitude, they actually expressed her belief in his divinity. She was humble. She had faith. She was fervent. She was modest, respectful, rational. Uh, She relied only on the mercy of God. She was persevering, wasn't she? And the little faith that she had exercised, like a mustard seed, made an impact upon her attitude and her lifestyle. And is it any wonder that Jesus said to her, O woman, great is thy faith? (laughs) And like the nobleman's son you read about there in John 4, and the centurion's servant in Luke 7, the daughter of this Canaanite woman was healed at a distance, not in Christ's immediate presence. And as in each of the other cases, healing was immediate and it was complete. And again, demons have to obey Christ, even from a distance. So we learned some things there in that uh, example, didn't we? Now let's look at the example in Mark 5. And we have a completely different scenario here. Mark 5, beginning with verse 1. And they came over unto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God. That's interesting, that word adjure there. It's like he wanted Jesus to swear an oath. (laughs) It's interesting. I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there was, and we'll get to that in a moment too, because that's very interesting. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Isn't that interesting? All the devils. (laughs) All the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, and that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about two thousand and were choked in the sea. In essence, they drowned. Now, there's some interesting things here. Mark says that there's one man with an unclean spirit. But you read the same account in Matthew Matthew 8, and he speaks of two men. Similarly, Matthew speaks of two blind men at Jericho in Matthew 20, where Mark in Mark 10 and Luke in Luke 18 speak about one. And it's worthy of note that Matthew no doubt had an... Uh, an eyewitness to both these events, and he mentions two men in, in each instance. Now, I bring this up because I want to take a moment to speak about this, because variations such as these have been used by Bible skeptics as proof that the gospel writers are unreliable. Some even say false, and, and thus certainly not inspired by God. But a careful examination, I, friends, actually proves the opposite. Those who wrote the Gospels, along with the other followers of Christ, considered themselves witnesses of the events of the Lord's life. They were eyewitnesses. They staked everything on the truthfulness of their witness, and so these accounts do coalesce, as we're going to see here in a moment. One reason for, I believe, one reason for such a position that all accounts must be exactly alike is the misunderstanding of what it means to be inspired of the Holy Spirit. Inspiration, or being inspired, 
is not necessarily dictation. And many people have a problem with that. They think that being inspired by the Holy Spirit means that the Holy Spirit always dictates to you what he wants to be written down. And so if the Bible writers were all inspired from the same Holy Spirit, then there would be no variations at all. This is also the thinking behind those who believe the spirit of prophecy has been tampered with because they may find a supposed contradiction. You see, because of this flawed definition, their thinking is that if the accounts are not exactly alike, well then it's proof that the Holy Spirit was not involved at all and these supposed inspired accounts are actually not inspired at all, but they're all lies or someone secretly changed them so you can't trust them, you know. Have you heard any of this before? But that's not the case at all because their definition of inspiration and what it means to be inspired is wrong. So they started right off with the wrong foundation. It's true that at times the Holy Spirit may dictate exactly what he wants conveyed or an angel may be sent to give an exact message that needs to be conveyed exactly how he says it, but that's not the norm in in, uh, the scriptures or the spirit prophecy, friends. Let me share some some uh, things with you here Uh, from Selected Messages Volume 1, page 21 It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired but the men that were inspired Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions but on the man himself who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts but the words receive the impress of the individual mind the, defi- the divine mind is diffused. The divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will. Thus the utterances of the man are the word of God. There's another one. You go to page 25. Same source. The Bible points to God as its author, yet it was written by human hands. And in the varied style of its different books, it presents the characteristics of the several writers. The truths revealed are all given by inspiration of God, yet they are expressed in the words of men. The Infinite One by His Holy Spirit has shed light into the minds and hearts of His servants. He has given dreams and visions, symbols and figures, and those to whom the truth was thus revealed have themselves embodied the thought in human language. You starting to see the picture here? Here's one more. This is from The Faith I Live By, page 11. Actually, I think it's page 111. i got a typo there. It's page 111. God has been pleased to communicate His truth to the world by human agencies, and He Himself, by His Holy Spirit, qualified men and enabled them to do this work. He guided the mind in the selection of what to speak and what to write. The writers of the Bible had to express their ideas in human language. It was written by human men. These men were inspired of the Holy Spirit. The scriptures were given to men, not in a continuous chain of unbroken utterances, but piece by piece through successive generations, as God in His providence saw a fitting opportunity to impress man at sundry times and diverse places. Men wrote as they were moved upon by the Holy Ghost. I hope that kind of clarifies it a little bit. And of course, I could go on and on about that. But um, I'm just trying to make my point about these different accounts that we read about in the Bible. They seem to contradict, and that's not the case. Think of it this way. In a court today, if witnesses all testify precisely the same, let's say you have ten witnesses, and they're They testify precisely the same, like a carbon copy of each other, like dictation regarding an incident. What would you think? Usually the conclusion is not that they are truthful, but that they're lying. Because the experience teaches us that no two people see an event exactly alike, depending on the incident. One point impresses one witness, another point impresses another. They may all have heard exactly the same words spoken in connection with the event, but each reports the words a little differently. One witness may even report certain parts of a conversation that the other witnesses don't report. 
But as long as there is no clear contradiction in the thought or the meaning of these variant statements from these witnesses, the witnesses may be considered to have told the truth. Apparent contradictory statements may often prove to be, friends, not contradictory at all, but rather complementary. It's been the experience of the courts through the years that truthful witnessing need not be, indeed should not be, equated with carbon copy identity of testimony of the different witnesses to the event, including their testimony as to what was said at a particular event. So, the charge that the gospel writers are unreliable because their reports differ is really groundless. In fact, those writers provide the clearest proof that there was no collusion between them, that they independently reported what most... uh, particularly impressed their divinely illumined minds regarding the life of Christ. In other words, friends, their testimonies weren't rehearsed together so that we got, get all our stories right. They wrote their accounts at different times and different places. And apparently, and this is how I take it, concerning you know the demoniacs, um, one of the two demoniacs was incredibly fierce, and so that was the one that Mark was emphasizing for his account, so he only mentions him. Matthew, what was Matthew? Matthew had been a tax collector. Well, what does that tell you? He was good with numbers, wasn't he? So he wanted to be more accurate to the number of demoniacs. See? And as he had worked a lot, with numbers in his past, that's what he did. So, think about these things when you, you come across any other supposed contradictions. doesn't mean that they, they're butting heads. They're just two different witnesses. Okay? So let's get back to it. The demoniacs here. Jesus arrives on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. This was in the... Um, region of Decapolis. The distance across the, the Sea of Galilee at this point was about seven miles. And uh, in fact, it was upon this crossing that Jesus had stilled the storm. You know, you read about Matthew 8, which made an incredible impression upon the disciples. His purpose in crossing to the uh, less densely populated eastern shore at this time was to enjoy actually you know a, a brief respite from the crowds that pressed upon him in fact it was so they did that so much he very rarely even had time to eat or sleep Christ and the disciples they arrive a short distance to the south of what is now, uh, now called the village of Kursai there was a steep drop-off from this area to the sea, and there was a small trail that led along the shoreline for travel. Now it said in verse 2, it said, And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. The hills in this region, this area, uh, they're mostly limestone. And because of the soft stone, it had a number of caverns. It had a number of uh, hewn chambers that they used for burials. Which, by the way, did you know that according to Levitical law, Leviticus 21, uh, that a corpse was unclean, and this uncleanness would attach also to the place of burial? So wherever they put a a dead person in once they've had the funeral and everything that was unclean you couldn't you couldn't go in there so picture this and think about it for a minute Jesus arrives and immediately he's greeted by a man with an unclean spirit that comes out of the tombs which was considered to be a spiritually unclean place for a believer a Jew right What does that tell you about where a demon will lead you? A demon will lead you to spiritually unclean places. (laughs) Okay? Now, this is an area 
that has a narrow, like I said, a narrow uh, a trail along the shoreline. In fact, Matthew's account says that no one could pass that way, is the way Matthew puts it, which implies that where these demon-possessed men stayed was not far from that narrow pathway. It was a place where they could more easily attack travelers. Remember, demons love war and violence, and they hate human beings. Let's look again at verses 3 to 4. 3 and 4. said, Who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder, by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. This man dwelt among the tombs and away from people. That's what sin does. Sin separates, doesn't it? It isolates, it makes men antisocial. They're too ashamed to come to God or to be with other humans. Demons tempt us to sin, and when able to possess a person, when strong enough, in this case uh, there were over a thousand demons involved, possibly, maybe two thousand, as that's how many swine there were that they went into. Um, we don't really know the number, <laughs> you know, but it's possible. Uh, they led the men away from family and loved ones, and where'd they t- lead them to? To the tombs where the dead are. Their strength in numbers, right? And uh, if you divide your enemy, you have a better chance to conquer them. Isn't that the way it goes? Divide and conquer? Have you heard that saying? This possessed man became a pest to the town and to the people. The people tried in vain to bind him, but he had supernatural strength, and he'd break the chains, which were, uh, that word means handcuffs is about the best way to describe it. And fetters, they were like shackles on they put on your feet. And he would break those things. He behaved like a wild beast, as it said there, as neither could any man tame him. He was uncontrollable. Listen to this from the book The Desire of Ages, page 337. She says, their eyes, speaking of these demoniacs, their eyes glared out from their long and matted hair. The very likeness of humanity seemed to have been blotted out by the demons that possessed them, and they looked more like wild beasts than like men. That tells us something, doesn't it? Verse 5. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. Isn't that interesting? It sounds as if this man was, well, first of all, it's like he was sleep-deprived. He was tormented so much, there was no rest for him. He had no relief day or night. That's incredible. Um, and in fury, it's incredible that he just wasn't a big lump of exhaustion, you know. In fury, he gashed his body. Was probably just imagine this. He's probably a mass of scars and sores. Reminds me, the behavior there reminds me of the those priests of Baal at Mount Carmel. You remember who danced around the altar and they cut themselves. 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's read that. Verse, 20, verse 26. And they took the bullock which was given them, and they dressed it and called on the name of Baal from morning even unto noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice nor any that answered. And they leaped upon the altar which was made. And it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's talking, or he's pursuing, or he's in a journey, or peradventure he sleeps and must be awake. And they cried aloud, and this is verse 28, and they cried aloud, and what they do? They cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. You know in the Middle East that they still do these things? Yeah. 
certain parts of Islam, they have these, quote, festivals, and, and, and the people do that. They cut themselves, and you see pictures of them with blood all over them as they're doing this. This was a wild ritual dance in which they worked themselves up into a state of frenzy. And these kinds of, uh, of exhibitions have been accompanied by manifestations of uh, demon or demonic power. And undoubtedly it was hoped that by these you know, means that fire might be secured you know, and come down from heaven and burn a sacrifice. But why would they cut themselves? Self-mutilation, you, you read into this, self-mutilation was actually common in pagan cultures and was resorted to under the notion that the gods delight in the shedding of blood. And such bloody rites were not, well, they're not, they weren't unusual in the Old Testament times. But they were forbidden for God's people to do. You read Leviticus and Deuteronomy. It was forbidden. So you read about that account there at Mount Carmel, what these priests of Baal were doing, and it sounds very similar to the behavior of the demoniac. He wasn't dancing around, but he was cutting himself. And terrible as he was to others, he himself endured, you imagine, the misery that he endured and actually maybe self-inflicted that torture he put him through. He was searching for some kind of relief. Maybe being led to believe that, you know, by doing that, his shed blood would appease the demon and remove his torment. Maybe that's why. I'm not sure. But, but look at what the demons will lead you to do. Let's go back to Mark. Mark 5, verse 6. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? So what that means is it sounds kind of um, confusing. But Jesus is telling, at the very time that Jesus is telling the spirit to come out, the, the, this demon to come out, this unclean spirit, the unclean spirit interrupts Jesus. Okay? And so then Jesus asks him, What's thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now, we already learned that demons are not attracted to Jesus, Right? So why did this possessed man, on first appearance when you read it, why did this possessed man run to Jesus and worship him? You got any ideas? You picture the scene. These guys were in these tombs, don't know, for a long time. And, and they could see out over the Sea of Galilee. So... This guy and his companion, they may have been on the lower slopes of the hill that dropped off into the sea, and they, they probably observed the boats approaching the shoreline. And so they ran, probably with the intention of attacking Jesus and those who accompanied him. That was their custom, sort of, you know, that's what they did. No doubt they were screaming wildly while coming down the beach. But when they got you know, close enough to Jesus, they somehow perceived that here was, and it wasn't the demons, but it was the men and their caged will. They saw a friend, not a foe, and they prostrated themselves on the ground at Jesus' feet. They saw somebody who could help them. Let's go back to the book to the Desire of Ages, page 338. When the men, gnashing their teeth and foaming at the mouth, look at when she said before they were, they were like beasts, more like beasts than men, look at how they're described. They were gnashing their teeth, foaming at the mouth, approached him. Jesus raised that hand which had beckoned the waves to rest. Remember, he calmed the storm just not too long before that. And the men could come no nearer. They stood raging but helpless before him. With authority he bade the unclean spirits to come out of them. 
His words penetrated the darkened minds of the unfortunate men. Notice this, she says, they realized dimly. That's how beat down their wills were. But they realized dimly that one was near who could save them from the tormenting demons. They fell at the Savior's feet to worship Him. But when their lips were opened to entreat His mercy, the demons spoke through them. So just like the other account that we studied, when they went to talk, the demons still had power, was within them, and and overpowered their voice, took control of their voice, and spoke through Him. What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God, Most High? I beseech thee, torment me not. Jesus asked, What is thy name? And the answer was, My name is Legion, for we are many. Using the afflicted men as mediums of communication, they besought Jesus not to send them out of the country. So that's what we read about there. But I want you to make point of that they realized dimly. See, they still, their wills were caged, but they could still, uh, um, they could still make a right decision. Okay? So when these men saw that Jesus could save them from their captors, even though they dimly realized it, they exercised their wills and fell at his feet to worship him. And as they tried to cry, you know, to him for help, as in, like I said, the other cases, the demons spoke through them, and, and what they do? They challenged the authority of Jesus. They actually begged Jesus not to send them to, as the Greek word for out of the country implies, the deep or depth. Actually, that same Greek word is translated in Revelation as the bottomless pit. So they didn't want destroyed, or they didn't want sent to a place where they could not tempt or possess someone. Let's go back to Mark 5. Verse 11. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into... Again, all the devils. You catch that? All the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place in the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. <coughs> in causing the destruction of the swine, um, I mean, what what was that all about, right? Well, what is Satan's purpose, really? He wants to turn people's attention away from Christ, doesn't he? And that's what he was doing here. So he, he, he was trying to um, turn the people away from the Savior and prevent the preaching of the gospel in that region. But this very occurrence actually did the opposite. Isn't that the case through history? You see, when Satan wants to do something, God turns it to good, right? It actually roused the whole country uh, um, up and directed attention to Christ. (laughs) And though the Savior left, the men whom he'd healed remained as witnesses to what he had done for them and his power. There was a complete change in these men, of course. Uh, the light of truth had come into their minds, their eyes beamed with intelligence, which I wanted to make note of because there is something about eyes in demonic possession. But when you're possessed of the Holy Spirit, you you, you can see someone's, like she's, you know, I, I read in accounts that they have intelligence. They're not like beasts and dumb. Um, their countenances changed. They had been deformed into the image of Satan on one hand, but uh, became suddenly mild. Um, They were quiet. They had glad voices. They praised God for their deliverance. And please don't miss this. Whatever spirit possesses a person 
be it the Spirit of Christ or a demon, will often, very often, reflect in that person's countenance. Remember when Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin and before Pilate that his countenance was one of serene nobility? Compare that to the countenances of these two demoniacs. One other thing I want to share with you before moving on, and I've mentioned it several times, but how we treat our body has a part to play in spiritual possession. The great controversy, let me share this, great controversy, page 515. I'm talking about why, why did he allow these demons to go into those swine? She says here, he allowed the evil spirits to destroy the herd of swine as a rebuke to those Jews who were raising these unclean beasts for the sake of gain. Had not Christ restrained the demons, they would have plunged into the sea not only the swine, Okay, let me read that again. Had not Christ restrained the demons, they would have plunged into the sea not only the swine, but also their keepers and owners. The preservation of both the keepers and the owners was due alone to His power, mercifully exercised for their deliverance. Furthermore, this event, I mean, when you read that, think about the mercy God shows towards us and towards all sinners, right? Furthermore, this event was permitted to take place that the disciples might witness the cruel power of Satan upon both man and beast. The Savior desired his followers to have a knowledge of the foe whom they were to meet, that they might not be deceived and overcome by his devices. It was also his will that the people of that region should behold his power to break the bondage of Satan and release his captives. And though Jesus himself departed, the men so marvelously delivered remained to declare the mercy of their benefactor. And so, um, these Jews, they raised and sold hogs for gain. So even if they didn't eat some of the forbidden flesh, you know, it was forbidden. Uh, so even though they, they may not have eaten it, we don't know. My guess is, yeah, some of them probably did. Uh, just the very act of raising and selling such things condoned it. And so when we eat those things that God has forbidden us to eat, well, we're being disobedient to God and we're allowing Satan an opportunity to take possession of us or maybe even those within our households. And I'll say, friends, don't doubt me on this. Don't doubt me on this. Let's quickly look at another incident. This is Mark chapter 9. And we'll look at, uh, begin with verse 14. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. This is after the Mount, uh, Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, Verse 16, And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? So he comes down off the mountain, and here are the scribes questioning his, the disciples that were at the bottom of the mountain. And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth. Didn't we just read something like that? <laughs> and pineth away, and I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters. Where did the demons cast the swine into? The waters to destroy him. 
But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out, and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. As a side note, Ellen White says that anyone who who sincerely prays that same prayer (laughs) will be helped of God, will be saved. Isn't that remarkable? Help thou mine unbelief. Verse 25, When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, Hey, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting, which is an interesting insight into the 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 uh, spiritual state of the disciples. Uh, maybe at another time we can talk about that. But here we are. It's the day following the transfiguration. Jesus and the three disciples descended from the Mount of Transfiguration to the plain below where the other nine were waiting. And, and so that's the timing of this incident with the possessed boy. Now what's interesting is that this is the only recorded instance where Jesus made specific inquiry of the case history of the person that he healed. His reasons for doing this uh, upon this occasion um, really is unclear. Uh, Maybe he called upon the Father to give a description of the disease and its effects in order that you know, the people standing around might fully appreciate what kind of condition the boy was in. Um, I mean, the case was chronic. And from a human point of view, probably more difficult to deal with. But in the Greek, the expression sore vexed was generally used to describe diseases which uh, human skill couldn't deal with. They weren't able to alleviate it. So this father had a boy that was possessed with a dumb and mute spirit. He said sometimes the devil had him going into these convulsions and he fell into the water and sometimes he fell into the fire and the devil's uh, trying to kill him. And Jesus identified that it was indeed a devil that was causing this and not a disease. Some people think, well, this boy had a disease. And so, you know, I want to pause as some may ask, how do you know where to draw the line between what we could today call a medical condition uh, versus demon possession when all they needed was maybe a simple surgical procedure or some medicine to solve the problem? I mean, how do you explain that? Well, sometimes it can be difficult to discern, and that's why we're looking at these instances given in God's Word and noting the characteristics of possession. I do think that there are some people that might have a chemical or maybe a a, a physiological problem uh, that actually makes it easier for devils to manipulate them and to torment them. And yes, medical treatment or medicine can take away the advantage of the devil to use that to possess them. A person might have a problem with epileptic fits, for example. Uh, But you know something? Even those who struggle with epilepsy or some kind of convulsion, they don't know when it's going to happen. They can't always time, when will my next seizure be? You're right. But the devil can sometimes influence those things. You see what I'm saying? A person might have a chemical imbalance and it could give them a little sense of melancholy, but the devil might be able to turn that into uh, a suicidal depression. And so, you know, there's a mixture of, mixture of these things and the devil will use whatever he can to destroy us. And remember, health reform has a tremendous effect upon the devil's ability to take such advantages against us. And just because of modern medicine and science... Uh, to treat certain things 
that they can, you know, they can treat certain things. Doesn't mean that the devil doesn't know how to exploit these things and turn it into demonic possession. So sometimes it does; it causes physical reactions. In Mark nine, this boy who was having these seizures, Jesus said to the father, "How long has this happened?" And I think that's very interesting. The father said, "Since he was an infant." That's what the Greek word means. This has been happening since he was an infant. That's scary to me. That tells me that the devil wars with us virtually from the day we are born. Which reminds me of something I read while looking at this subject. Um, Let me share this quickly before we close up. Uh, Manuscript Releases, Volume 6, page 367. Now... I want you to, the context, the overall context isn't on our subject, but I want you to look at the narrow context. Notice this. In the management of the school, there is to be the very best kind of discipline. In learning, the students cannot have their own way. They have got to give up their own way to discipline. This is a lesson that is yet to be learned by a good many families. But we hear, oh, let them do this. They are nothing but children. They will learn when they get older. Well, just as soon as a child in my care would begin to show passion and throw himself on the floor, he never did it but once, I want to tell you. I would not let the devil, notice this, she says, I would not let the devil work right through that child and take possession of it. The Lord wants us to understand things. He says, Abraham commanded his children and his household after him, and we want to understand what it means to command, and we want to understand that we have got to take hold of the work if we resist the devil. That's interesting. So this is very serious stuff, friends. We are in a battle against the forces of darkness from the time we are born. The devil wants us and our children, and too many times we think that the battle, I think sometimes we think the battle begins when we're older, you know, at the age of reason. That's not true. Look at the generation of kids in our world today that were raised without any or much discipline at all. Look at what our world's like. There's a lot involved in this. Speaking again, you know, Mark 9, the disciples said, remember, he said, why, why couldn't we cast out that devil? And Jesus said, these kinds of devils don't come out except by prayer and fasting. So when we look at this, you know, I've seen some commentators say, well, this was a disease. It had nothing to do with, you know, demonic possession and such. But Jesus here demonstrates that it was a demonic problem and not specifically, necessarily, epilepsy or disease. Now, the the possession might have caused that to happen, which is very evident it did. <coughs> now, you also notice that the scribes had attributed the helplessness of the nine disciples to cast out the demon, you know, to the, the presumed uh, superior power of the demon, asserting that Jesus' control, in essence, was limited to, you know, less powerful demons. The real trouble however, lay not in the power of the demon, but in the spiritual impotence of the disciples. And so, we must have faith, friends, to deal with these enemies of righteousness. We have to exercise faith. Also, I want you to understand that Christ doesn't here refer to when he says prayer and fasting. He's not referring to the prayer that's offered in connection with the casting out of the demons. He's talking on a bigger scale. He, he, he's not talking about that momentary prayer here, but he's speaking about having a life that is actuated by prayer and fasting. Because, you know, during the absence of Peter, James, and John, remember they went with Christ up on, on, on the mountain to, to the transfiguration. The other nine disciples had been dwelling, waiting upon them, dwelling upon their discouragements, on personal grievances, they were cultivating a spirit of jealousy. You know, why does Jesus always favor Peter, James, and John? You know, that kind of stuff. Their state of mind and heart made it impossible for God to work through them. That's why they couldn't cast out the demon. So we need to be very, very careful 
about our state, our spiritual state. And, of course, when we get into how, you know, the process, biblical process of casting out the demon, we'll cover some of this. But um, that same spirit of disunity will reap the same results in us today if we're not very careful. And we want to be in unity, don't we? We want to answer the Lord's Prayer, be a part of that answer in John 17. Next time we get together, uh, we'll look at maybe a couple more instances. We'll get more into uh, some of the other aspects. And so, let's have a word of prayer. Father in Heaven, we do again thank you so much for this Holy Sabbath day. Uh, We thank you for uh, being with us today, blessing us, helping us to have understanding. Uh, We thank you for the angels uh, that you send to help us in our walk, and and, uh, we pray that you will continue to bless them. Uh, in uh, their work on on our behalf. Uh, Father, we pray that you will continue to walk with us today in the coming days ahead and help us to be uh, spiritually stronger people, uh, that that, uh, people may see Jesus in our life and that they may be urged to want to be a part of uh, the family, that spiritual family. And so we pray that you continue to protect us from these evil uh, powers, these evil spirits, and uh, prepare us for the battle that's coming. We thank you so much for Jesus, who made all this possible for our salvation. We pray this in his name. Amen.